Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 to 30. Saul told David, Here is my oldest daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines be against him. But then David responded, Who am I, and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? When it was time to give Saul's daughter Mirab to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and what was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, you can now be my son-in-law. Saul then ordered his servants, speak to David in private and tell him, look, the king is pleased with you and all his servants love you. Therefore, you should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor commoner. The servants reported back to Saul, these are the words David spoke. Then Saul replied, say this to David, the king desires no other bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hand of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms, David to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael to David as his wife. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him, and he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Well, if you don't know me, my name's Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And um, if I haven't met you, I'd love to after the gathering. Um, if you'd like, if you would, you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's what Sue just read for us. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning is in the second half of that chapter, verses 17 through 30. And while you're turning there, I wanted to share just a little bit of a context of, of this passage. And the, it's the second half of the chapter and is in a sense, it's kind of this continuation of this character that we've come to know, Saul, this once kind of gray character with potential and a lot of different qualities in him, but then slowly we start to see this downward spiral, this digression of character to where now he's kind of becoming this villain that those who are familiar, if you're familiar with First Samuel, First and Second Samuel, if you're familiar with that, he comes, becomes this villain that we kind of know him as. And this chapter is a really interesting chapter because in the first half we get to see just the result, the root of this, which is envy. This envious kind of look at David of what's happening to him. 
accompanied by all these failures in the past that Saul had done, rejecting God, not following his, his will, not following his law. Now it's just this downward spiral of this new Saul. And the second half of this chapter is unfortunately just this look at this new person, this, this Saul who's now kind of the villain uh, to David, and he's, and he's doing all these things. But in another sense, the second half of chapter 18 is where the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, begin to give all of this color and a shape to 1 Samuel. It's actually one of my personal favorite parts of this entire book of 1 Samuel because we get to compare it now to those songs and the poetry and the different things that David would look back on his life and see God's protection in his hand throughout all of it. And it's this, this wonderful interplay that we get to see of when we look to the Psalms, we now see David, this older wiser king, look back on moments like chapter 18, and we get to see how he was covered in the shadow of the Almighty, and we get to learn more of what that means. So I hope you've turned there by now, and I'd love to pray with us before we begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet us here. Meet us here, God. I pray that your spirit would speak to us. Open our hearts and our eyes to see the narrative at hand, to see the story at hand and how it speaks to such a deeper truth. It speaks to the truth of your character, of how you protect your children, how you carry your children, how you cover your children. And those who have faith in Christ can remain confident that we too, just like David, are also covered under the shadow of the Almighty, under your shadow. I pray, God, that you would speak to us and help us understand your word. In Christ's name, amen. So I do wonder, as I'm thinking about this passage, as I was studying through it this week, it did make me think about the past memories that we kind of have And I wondered if you also have past memories that kind of clarify over time. You know, we could say it's just old age or like, you know, that we're getting older, but I think that there's a wisdom that we experience when we're living our lives and then we look on past moments that happened that seemed at the time super insignificant. Or maybe they just seemed like not a big deal. And then all of a sudden, as you start to think about it, over time, as God kind of gives you more and more wisdom and more and more discernment, you kind of think, maybe that was more important than I thought. Now, one, one element, one example for me is when I was in the ninth grade, there was a guy who did not like my existence. He just, he did not like me existing there. I didn't do anything wrong to him. I did not do anything to him. In fact, things were very cordial, I thought, on my end. I was, I was in that kind of mindset that like, if you're a friend to everyone, surely everyone is a friend to you. But the first time I noticed that he, he may not like me is when I would like go to the cafeteria in the ninth grade and I would walk in and he would be talking and then he would do one of those things where he's like talking and he would talk and then he would stop when I would come in and like give that 
that kind of stare, you know, as you're walking through. And this wouldn't be a big deal if everyone was doing it. I would think like, oh, they wanted me to say something. But it would just be him, you know, like in the shadows, kind of like giving that stink eye. So that was my first thing. My second thing is, is that he also, I don't think he appreciated my musical tastes that I thought everyone should appreciate. I was really into The Cure. Does anybody remember that band? Oh, it's, I, that was a mixed response. I don't know, I'm feeling vulnerable right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The Cure, it was like, he like, the main guy, he like teased out his hair and straightened his bangs and wore like the tight black clothes. I thought that was cool. So that's what I was like. I wore all of that. And, and I thought it was cool. I thought that he would appreciate it. But this guy didn't appreciate it. Well, one day, I remember a friend of mine, one of my best friends, was walking with me to class. And he was being kind of odd. And he was being a little funny. Like he was being like a spy, almost. He was walking by me. And he had his hand around my shoulder. Like that's kind of a weird way to walk your friend to class. And he kept on like looking from side to side. And I remember just asking him, like, What's, what, what are you doing? You know, why, what, what are you doing? And I don't remember exactly what he said, but I do remember him saying something to the effect of, like, um, you don't want to know. You don't want me to tell you what's going on. And, of course, when someone tells you that, you're like, well, yeah, of course I want to know. Tell me what's going on. And he's like, okay, I'll tell you. That guy, Tyler, we'll just call his name Tyler because that was his name. Tyler... He brought a knife to school for you. And I remember like, no way, really? Not to give me, but to like, to, he's like, to stab you. Like, he, he does not like you. So this guy, Tyler, he really didn't like me, I guess. And he ended up bringing this knife to school and my, and my friend Kyle, he told um, he, he was by his locker room, I guess, at some point, and he heard about it, and then he saw it. And unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to me and all that had happened, my friend Kyle, he went to the, to, to the school police officer, he told him, he went to the principal, then he sat all of these people around, and he was someone who, when he was really um, passionate about something, Everyone was going to become passionate about that. Like, his kind, he was very noble in that regard. And so he, like, went in and it made this big announcement to the, to the whole school staff that I was in danger. And then, unbeknownst to me, they had created this whole buddy system of, like, people following me around. They pulled Tyler from the school. He got uh, suspended. They found the knife. Um, he was removed. They separated us from different classes. And it was all of, this, all of this work that was being done of protecting me, like unbeknownst to me. Like I had no idea that this was happening. But Kyle, being the ninth grader that he was, you know, obviously when something that dramatic is happening, you can't just like hold it in for that long. You know, so he had done all this work and he's like, and I'm not even going to tell him. I have to tell him, you know. <laughs> and then he ended up telling me. And so... Over the time, when, I was, when that happened, I didn't really think surprisingly much of it. But now that I think about it, and the more I think about it as an adult, I'm like, that's kind of a big deal. A knife is dangerous. Like, you could die from that. That's a, that's a big deal. And, I, and my heart gets more and more thankful 
over all of these plans that I didn't know about a protection towards me. And I really become more aware of the severity of what's at hand. And so in our passage today, when we think about chapter 18 and we see this young David being brought in to this kingdom and having all of these things happen, what we need to remember is that most of the story that we are let in on, he is unaware of. He's unaware of, but only that we find in Psalms, through multiple Psalms, particularly in Psalm 91, do we see him look back and we see all of this protection that God had placed in these specific moments of time that David would come through and he would arrive safely. He was covered, he was covered by God's protection. But it takes wisdom and it takes discernment and it takes growing to see the reality of things at hand. So I want to put before you guys this morning Psalm 91 verse 1. And it reads this, The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. This psalm displays really the thematic tone of our story today. But the good question to ask is, what does it mean to live under the protection of the Most High and dwell in the shadow of the Almighty? Living under God's protection, dwelling in His shadow. As we can see through this passage, it's to be covered, to be covered by schemes, to be carried through snares, and to be cast into success, ultimately found in the death and the resurrection of Christ. So let's, let's move to verse 17, and we're going to just see where this takes place, looking at kind of that theme as the overarching kind of uh, theme for it, for the story. Covered from schemes, it says in verse 17, Saul told David, here's my oldest daughter, Mirab. I'll give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So we're given this behind-the-scenes look now of what's actually taking place. Saul's now, he is now fully apart from God, right? There's been moment after moment of, of moral failure, of uh, spiritual failures. All of these things have happened, and he is fully removed from God, and now he knows it, and he's now convinced, and he's becoming more and more convinced that David's going to be winning over Israel. As he's looking, he's hearing the chants, he's hearing the songs that Israel is claiming over David And he sees that David's growing in influence over the country with God's help. God is coming nearer and nearer to David and it's becoming more and more evident from Saul. But verse 15, it says that when Saul observed David was very successful, he dreaded him. He dreaded this. He's just watching all of these things happen before him. So following that line of thinking, he comes up with this plan, right? He comes up with this plan. And as he gives this plan, David, we already see in Psalm 55, verse 21, David already is recollecting this by saying in Psalm 55, verse 21, his buttery words are smooth, but war is in his heart. 
His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn like swords. Only later would David see that, but in the midst of it, he doesn't see what's actually going on. Saul's envy has digressed to dread, dread to unwishful thinking, unwishful thinking to scheming, scheming to malicious plans of death. In scheming and malicious plans, they always come from somewhere. And it's a warning to us to take notice that there are schemes out there. There are schemes that we live in in the present day that we need to be aware of. And two things I want to highlight when it comes to this is first I want to highlight that the scheme is also has an element of spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy, and that's, that's where we find it right here, is that Saul is willing to send others to war. Like, we shouldn't exclude that, that these are soldiers. These, this is Israel's army, and he's willing to send all of these people to war, all of these people to die, just so one person can die. Just to have David killed, and the hypocrisy is in his, it's in his selfish motives, right? But this is what's even worse. This is why it's spiritual hypocrisy, is that he's using the Lord's name as an authoritative means to carry out his evil desires. And this, unfortunately, is what we continue to see in the world today, right? This is the whole Ravi Zacharias scandal that happened. Spiritual hypocrisy at play. If you don't know who that is, it's a prominent Christian leader who recently passed away, but after his passing, it was, it was uh, uh, shown that there was, that he was abusing multiple women all over the world. But the, dark, the darkness of that, that brought all of that scandal was not just in all of the, the abuse and all of the pain that was brought, but it was also in the way that he was using his position in scripture out of context to make women really vulnerable. And it's this spiritual hypocrisy that we don't just see in Saul's time, but we see that comes today, that we have to be so mindful of, that we have to be so aware of, because using the Lord's name as an authoritative means to carry evil desires will always always be hypocritical to the gospel, will always be hypocritical to the character of God himself, will never, ever, ever work with the beauty in the scriptures that God shows us, that he reveals to himself, and also, in the second way, that spiritual hypocrisy, that scheming that happens always warrants suffering. There are people who will always suffer from evil schemes, from taking the Lord's name as an authoritative means, carrying it out through evil desires, and people will suffer from it. And even in Saul's own family, we see them suffering from it as well. Now, in one sense, David, he asks, who am I? And what, you know, what is my family or my family's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law, right? We already see the king at hand, just real quick. We already see the king at hand. David 
is already acting and following with respect to the customs of God's law that have happened. There were differences of tribes. There were things that he needed to be mindful of. And he's just naturally posturing himself in a spirit of humility to accept that, no, not everything's offered to me. Not, and even the king offering this, why should I accept that when God's law says this? But Saul's scheme wants to cut under that and use the Lord's name to say, no, you can fight the Lord's battles. This isn't just my battle. This is the Lord's battles. You go fight that. And this distinction of David's realization and his understanding and humility in following the law is completely contrasted with Saul's scheme and spiritual hypocrisy to get David to move into closer and closer to the brink of death, right? He wants him to experience that. But when I mentioned, when I mentioned suffering, this is what is going to cause Saul suffering because it wouldn't even come just to him. Mirab, his daughter, in 2 Samuel, we will find that this marriage that Saul just offhandedly gives her away to, just kind of, it's this passing moment of, well, well, she can't be married to David, and that's not going to work, so here. That marriage, they, they have five sons, and then Saul has, from uh, one wife, he has two other sons. In 2 Samuel, out of this arrangement, Scholars see and compare that this arrangement led to the, the death of all seven of those people in 2 Samuel. It's this moment of Saul making terrible decisions out of spiritual hypocrisy and out of just this scheming that ultimately warrants suffering in his entire family and to himself. He's not thinking about anyone else. He's not thinking about anyone else. Scheming warrants suffering. They may not cause visible harm that we can see at the present, but suffering, it has this ripple effect. Suffering has this ripple effect that's decisions and choices move beyond just the antagonist who set them. They move beyond and they ripple out and they affect everyone. Just as we've seen in current days and just that we keep needing to combat against. We too have an enemy. Not just in the contextual moments, not just in these antagonists of our time, but we have an even greater enemy we have Satan's scheme who schemes actively against us. Actively against us time and time again. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, has this moment where we get to see this at play in the New Testament. For everything that we see with Saul conspiring against David, we also see this actively in the New Testament when it comes to Satan scheming against the disciples. 
And when we look at that, we see that as we too are disciples of Jesus, though in a different kind of context, we too are disciples of of Jesus, and the devil also schemes against us. But notice in Luke 22, verse 31 through 32, Jesus, he's informing Peter of Satan's scheme against him. And it's this really chilling, a really chilling verse that when you read that Jesus shares because Jesus knew that Peter would fail him momentarily by hypocritically saying that he didn't know Jesus when he did personally know him, when he didn't personally know him. But Luke says this in verse 31, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you turned back, strengthened your brothers. Now, I think that that is such a, as chilling as that is, it's such a word of comfort to us because like Saul, our enemy conspires to tempt us, conspires to deceive us, and conspires to destroy us. But God, Jesus in his grace covers us through through prayer with his divine authority. Do you guys feel that, that with every scheme that is plotted against us as disciples of Jesus, there are prayers of Jesus covering us from all of those schemes? They may affect us in some way or another, but ultimately God will cover us through Jesus because Jesus is actively praying on our behalf. That is a beautiful truth to rest in, that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you and he is praying against the schemes of the enemy so that you would not succumb to these temptations, so that you wouldn't succumb to these schemes and these these, uh, actions and these hypocritical moments that want to take you. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus says, I have prayed for you, not that Jesus is going to sit back and watch, not that he is going to leave you on your own, He is with us in our trials and fights against these actively. And he prevails ultimately. For every scheme that may be great in size, we are covered by a greater grace. Amen, church? No scheme from the enemy will prevail. Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit gives us that humility to be able to recognize limitations, to be able to recognize and discern personal desires. Jesus is too active in our faith to leave us on our own. But let's continue on in our passage where we we see that we're also carried through snares in verse 20 and 21. Verse 20, it said, Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, And when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. Verse 21, I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. Saul's first plan doesn't work, 
right? But a new development kind of falls in place. Unbeknownst, I mean, he didn't really necessarily plan this, but his second daughter, Michael, actually loves David, and he thought, well, this is great. But the question that we want to ask is, why is Saul so excited that this is happening? That doesn't sound like a good thing, since he's kind of becoming the villain, right? We, we don't, don't really want that. It's because not only does he get another go at sending David into battle, but there's just one other factor, and this is in verse 21 right there, where it says, verse 21, it shares this important detail. She'll be a trap for him. Also meaning, that word trap also means snare. And this is a very theologically rich word. And it's important to take note of because especially when it's describing someone. The word snare there is used throughout Scripture, but most often it's used in the Old Testament when it's referring to idol worship. When it's referring to idol worship, Exodus 23, verse 33, it says, they, the people who worshiped idols, must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. Again, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 16, you must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God is delivering over to you and not look with pity. You do not worship their gods, for that will be a snare to you. There is a direct connection between idol worship and snares and how they trap someone into diverting their attention away from God and towards the idol itself. It's a very theologically rich word that's kind of scattered out throughout the Old Testament. But we find in this next chapter, too, that Michael worshipped idols. So we know of at least one household idol that's going to be in chapter 19 that she worshipped, but there were likely others there. Saul knew David loved the Lord. And he also knew that if David and Michael were to wed, Michael would encourage him to follow her father's orders to go out to battle, and she would also bring her idols with her which is what happens. Thereby putting him in, in danger and corrupting him, not only physically, but also potentially corrupting him spiritually. So with all of like Saul's villainy here, with all of Saul's villainy, he is spiritually astute enough to recognize that the possibility of Michael's influence over David and that, that he could be led astray if he was in this direct influence all the time of these different idols, right? So you have this very malicious intent, not only in a physical sense anymore, but in a very spiritual sense, not just using Lord's name. Now it's coming even deeper. It's becoming to, to Michael to say, this, this daughter who is worshiping the idols, let's pair her up with David. And unfortunately, David does not know that. And so we find in chapter after chapter that this marriage that's going to be happening becomes further, more and more of a problem and becomes further and further apart. And so he wants David to, to be in this situation. David doesn't recognize the incompatibility of this, and he's pleased to marry her as it goes on, and he's pleased to take on 
this task of fighting the Philistines. Now, when we think about snares, we think about this context, we think about this moment of, of idols. We have to recognize that idols are not m- merely in the Old Testament, but that idols are not just a physical statue of something, but that there are, as the Bible describes this, idols of the heart. There are things that capture our attention and that move us and turn our eyes away from God and cause us to leave his presence, to try to actively leave his presence and move towards those things. So the question is, how do we now combat snares? How how can we combat snares? Because they're all over the place. And I think that the beauty of this passage that it shows us is that Remember, David is covered in the shadow of the Almighty. And so not only is he being covered through schemes, he's also being carried through snares, even if he's experiencing them for a momentary, for a moment. And with us, we can remain confident that God is also carrying us through snares by the way of spirit-led discernment. We have the Holy Spirit to help give us discernment when faced with some of these moments. There are snares that we know that we should stay away from in others, but there are also snares that we are unaware of. There are snares that, we, that find us. We need the Holy Spirit to prod our discernment and to lead us towards Christ, to keep continually walking towards Christ. The Spirit carries us through situations that we don't know about and also gives us what I like to call a supernatural prod of discernment to recognize the deeper matters at hand. Now, this is just a question, and this is something to be mindful of, is that there are areas in our lives that we can, we can be very intentional we can understand the deeper level at hand that we don't want to stay we want to stay away from these things but then there are other very subtle nuanced temptations at hand that can become snares to us unbeknownst to us think about social media think about social media and how many snares do you find on social media alone comparison escapism lust temptations um, looking, buying things. Social media is, is designed in such a way to cater to your interests and then bring in things subtly so that you will get swept up in them. And if we're not careful when we, if we think about, if we're not careful and we're not discerning, asking the Spirit to help us discern what's happening, we too may find ourselves surrounded by idols that are all attractive and all cater to the desires of the flesh, the desires that we want to cater to, and not think about the Spirit's prodding us to come back to Jesus and to remove all of those things. I'm not saying that social media is all bad, but there are elements like social media that do have that type of influence. It can be subtle, it can be nuanced, but they can be snares nonetheless. And we need the Holy Spirit's help 
to help us through those moments. But that's the beauty of when we get to look at the gospel and we get to see Jesus and we get to see what that ministry of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the ministry of help. That the Spirit comes to us, works in us, through us to help us see at a deeper level the reality at hand. The Holy Spirit prods us in a supernatural way to discern potential snares that might be around us that we can move away from. So it's so important to ask, God, check my heart. Lord, check my heart. Is, should I be on this? This looks, this is just Amazon, right? It's just Amazon or something. But I really want that thing. And before you know it, you're spending a lot of time looking at that device, that pull-up bar, that kettlebell, that something, this, that, or the other, the expensive thing. In my, I, I just thought of the word doohickey, but that's like kind of an old word. So, something. We need to use, we need the Lord's help to help us discern those moments to make sure that we're not going into snares, as subtle and as nuanced as they might be, unbeknownst to us. Now, David, he's given this news about Michael. God is ultimately going to carry him through this snare that's about to happen. But the bride price, it's 100 Philistine foreskins, which is super gross. Super gross, and it's super gruesome. But David not only delivers that, but brings twice the amount necessary, which is also super gross. And to me, it seems unnecessary, but it's in Scripture. But whatever it is, it's abundantly clear that despite all of Saul's attempts, we're moving and we're seeing something else happening at hand. We're seeing schemes that are trying to be thrown at David, but David is ultimately being covered by. We're seeing snares that are being brought into David's path, but that God is ultimately going to be carrying him through that. And now we're seeing David cast into success. Cast into success. And I love one of uh, theologian Dale Davis. He, he phrases it this way. He says, here is Yahweh's favor appearing most brightly and yet quietly. In his protection of David in danger, of which David was unaware we move into this scene, him cast into success. And I want to focus our attention on verses 28 through 30, where it says, Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved him. Verse 29. And he became even more afraid of David. And as a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Okay, now it's happened. Verse 30. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers, so his name became well known. Now, not only is the reality at hand from what we get to see, now Saul realizes it. Notice verse, 20, verse 28, Saul realized. In other words, other passages say, Saul saw 
Saul saw with his eyes that God is protecting him, that David is being cast into success not because of his own merit, not because of his looks or his charm or anything like this. It's because God is with him. God is with David. The Lord was with David. And that, that reality brought fear and dread to Saul. And that's going to happen again. That's going to happen in the New Testament with John when John is facing Herod. And Herodias, she doesn't like, she doesn't like John. She wants nothing to do with him. But it says in Mark, verse, Mark 6, 20, it says, because Herod, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was righteous and a holy man. Where does that holiness come from? Where does that righteousness come from? It comes when God is with someone. And those who are apart from God, those who are actively scheming against God and his people and his children can see the reality at hand and become afraid. Not at David, necessarily, but at the God who reigns above all and has brought one of his children close. And Saul is seeing David cast into success. And this is something, friends, that I want us to walk away with this morning, is the hope that we can walk away with is that as the Lord was with David, the Lord is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came to us so that we could be cast not into our own successes, but into his. When we see his resurrection, we see success. We see God coming to his people, covering his people, forgiving their sins, dying on the cross for them, and rising in the resurrection. Not just the, the success in the truest sense is our success and Christ. Through faith, Jesus' success in the resurrection, what does it say? It becomes ours. Through faith, it becomes ours as well. God is with us. God is not far off. God is not watching us, unable to help us in any of the schemes that the devil throws, any of the snares that we may find in the world. No, Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit, walking with us, covering us. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, just sets the picture of the truth of what, that really, of what that means. What does that mean? What does this mean by Jesus being with us? It means this. It means, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So what does, when God is covering us and we see that because of faith in Christ, Jesus' success becomes our success. Does that mean that we can fall away from it? Does it mean that a, that a scheme at hand, does it mean that a snare that may come up, will those lead us astray? There's this, there's this picture that, that I found that was of these two skeletons that were buried, archaeologists found it, and it's about like 4,000 years old. And it's a skeleton of a mother crouched up, holding the skeleton of an infant. And the mother was, was buried, it was a volcano in Pompeii that came, and all of the ash buried them. And the skeletons is, when you look at them, the, the skeleton of the mother is looking up, holding the baby, and the baby is content, and the baby's skull is facing the mother's chest. But over time, they found that those skeletons are now inseparable. They've somewhat fused together over this time. And we see, yeah, that, that skeleton, that mother, she did die. But that baby never left the presence of the mother. That baby was wrapped and covered in the protection of her mother. And even 4,000 years later, we get to see that the proof of that and that their bones are now fused together, inseparable. The death of Jesus for our sins was once and for all. And the resurrection that Jesus had three days after he died was once and for all. And through faith, friends, we are brought into that. And it is inseparable. It is inseparable. And the beauty of Jesus is that despite all that comes our way, despite everything that comes our way, we are ultimately placed under the shadow of the Almighty. We are ultimately placed in God's protection because we are ultimately, we are always in Christ. We need the recognition, we need the reality at hand of what's really going on, not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense as well. We need the Holy Spirit to prod us in our everyday living so that we're not walking into snares unbeknownst to us, but we will always live secure and always be reassured that we dwell in God's shadow and we live and, and can trust Jesus to lead us, knowing that there are dynamics at play in our lives now that may be hidden only to be potentially revealed later. I want to just put before you all that has happened this last year. All that has happened this last year. How many trials and difficulties have we all faced in this last year? Even collectively, we can all feel that. But what are we going to come away with in 10 years from now, in 15 years from now, in 20 years from now, we are going to look back on this moment and we are going to see something beautiful. We are going to see how we were covered 
in the shadow of the Almighty. We are going to see God's protection at hand in different ways. It just takes time and it takes wisdom and ultimately just this discernment for God to open our eyes over time to see the success that we've had in Christ all along. I want to encourage you that no matter what has happened in this last year, this last year and a half of what's happening right now, Jesus is not far off. Jesus is with. The Holy Spirit is not far off leaving you defenseless with your snares. No, he is with you now. He is with you right now, moving and prodding you towards discernment and wisdom. But watch, in 20 years from now, let's all see God's protection at hand. God is actively near. He's actively at work, continuing to lead us in the ultimate success that we have in Christ. Amen? Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are things happening now that we don't understand. There are situations and circumstances that we look at now and we don't see the importance of. But God, we trust you and we trust that you will give us that understanding and that wisdom and that discernment over time so that our faith will be strengthened. We will see that Christ has been with us all along, even when our faith seems to be floundering in the, the schemes that we face, the snares that we find ourselves in, God is always with us. You are always with us. Father, I pray that we would recognize the success of Jesus, of his resurrection happening in us, changing us, that the Holy Spirit would give us that peace and that understanding so that we would be able to live our days in the reassurance that we are never apart from you, that we are always with you because you are with us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.